0: I'll be reading verses 1 and 2, a short reading. Congregation, listen carefully. This is the very word of God. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It had been 400 years of silent waiting. The voice of the Old Testament prophet now muted. Their past message had been both convicting yet seasoned with mercy, severe yet hopeful. Israel's history had been a repeated expression of covenantal unfaithfulness and sin. Met with divine displeasure, but also an undeserved measure of God's patience and the future promise of a glorious king and a wonderful kingdom wrapped in Emmanuel, God with us. The Old Testament concludes with a people under judgment a once blessed nation set apart by God to be a kingdom of priests, God's own possession from among all the peoples, and yet a nation so entirely devoted to sin and iniquity that she would not follow God. Miraculously formed by the hand of God, the exodus, the wilderness, Jericho, I, I, God leads his people into the land of the promise, and there God leads them in victory over 31 kings. And he gives them the promised land, a land possessed not by their might or power, but by the power of God, not by works, but by grace. And oh, what a beautiful land! A land flowing with milk and honey, a land of Grapes and pomegranates and figs, a land of hills and valleys, a land that drinks the water from the rains of heaven. And Israel loved the land. She loved its milk and honey. She loved its grapes and figs. She loved its pomegranates and the water from the rain of heaven, She loved the Asherahs and the Baals that dotted its hills and valleys, idols from the nations that she was to remove. You see, Israel loved the land. She did not love the kingdom of heaven. Now you might say to me, Israel not loved the kingdom of heaven? Was she not zealous for the law? Indeed, she was. She had great zeal for the law. In fact, twice a day she would recite the Shema, that creed from Deuteronomy 6, uh, reaffirming their devotion to the law. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk with them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. Twice a day she would recite this creed, reaffirming their devotion to the law. But the Apostle Paul reminds us in Romans 10 that though they had great zeal for the law, it was not according to knowledge. Their zeal was fueled by a desire to pursue a righteousness of their own, not a righteousness which comes from God by faith. And as a result, their interest in the law was self-centered. It was but a means to an end. Israel had reduced the law to busy work. Their zeal never required that they take their ultimate interest off of themselves. Their pursuit of the law was merely a vehicle to induce God into blessing them. You see, their hunger was ultimately focused on this world. Where will I live? What will I eat? How will I secure comfort? Their interest in obedience was a means to manipulate God into satisfying these horizontal hungers. And so controlled and constrained by this man-centered perspective with eyes focused only on the temporal, on the here and now, Israel requested a king like the other nations. And in doing so, she rejected God as her king. And God granted their request in a most painful and literal way. In her disobedience, Israel was indeed granted kings like the other nations, for kings raised from among her own sons would so resemble the pagan leaders surrounding her that one could hardly distinguish between the Canaanite king and the ruler of Israel. But that was not all. Her continued spiritual decline would ultimately lead to exile, and there the likes of the Assyrian king Shalmaneser. And the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar ruled over her just as Pharaoh had done many years before. You see, Israel would ultimately have kings like the other nations because she would serve as exiled slaves in those other nations. Because of her sin and unbelief, Israel was removed from the beautiful land, cast into the darkness of exile And there something very tragic occurred. Israel was pressed into submission by a culture hostile to her own and forced to adopt the ways of her captors. But what was the real tragedy? Was the tragedy that she had forfeited the land of milk and honey? Or was the tragedy that she had forfeited a fuller expression of the Emmanuel promise, losing access to all of those Old Testament symbols which declared the nearness of God by grace. Her desire for this world brought her to the brink of losing the world to come. And yet even under foreign rule, Even in exile, she had God's promise of a new kingdom. The words of the prophets had been preserved in Scripture that they might serve as a perpetual reminder. The throne of David will be established forever. Her hope was in the future. The prophet Isaiah said, For a child will be born, a son will be given, and the government will rest on his shoulders. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom. The word of the prophet promised that the God of heaven will one day set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and the word of the prophet will not fail. But in the meantime, in the meantime, Israel was called to wait. Listen to the repeated words of the Psalms Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Wait for the Lord and keep his way. Wait for your God continually. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. Wait. 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 And after 400 years of waiting, the prophetic tongue was loosed. And a lone voice in the wilderness proclaimed, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. One more Old Testament prophet, John the Baptist, come to tell Israel about God's coming kingdom. Only now the Spirit of God stirs the prophet differently. Now the Spirit of God stirs the prophet to declare that the day of the kingdom was at hand. No longer wait, but now get ready. Get ready. A son of David called Emmanuel, God with us, was born. This Emmanuel, Jesus, came to usher in the new kingdom. Did you hear the words of the Baptist? The kingdom of heaven has come. And for many, these words meant that God was about to free Israel from foreign rule. He was about to reestablish their sovereign dominion in an earthly kingdom for all the nations to see. Israel would once again find her place as a dominant force among the nations, once again boast in the law and in the vast dominion of her great kingdom, once again chest-pounding with national pride. But Israel was not greeted with the open arms of an earthly king. After 400 years of waiting, the good news of the coming kingdom comes not in the form of a battle cry to attack, but the exhortation to repent. 400 years of silence disrupted by a warning of impending wrath against her if she does not turn from her way. Therefore, bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. You see, this call for repentance was at the same time a declaration of Israel's apostasy. She was not a law keeper. And the language of impending judgment was to be a signal to her that she was not right before God. Israel was called to bring forth the fruit of repentance or face the ultimate eternal exile in the place reserved for the ultimate enemy and his rebellious followers. She must repent. She must change her perspective on the law away with this external facade of obedience. A righteousness is required which exceeds that of the Pharisees. A heart for God is required which is expressed in a love for God's law. But it is this world she loves. And how do you make yourself love something that you don't love. You don't. You don't. She needs a new heart. A new king is needed who can soften the heart. One who can take away the sting of sin and death and replace it with the abundance of everlasting life. And Jesus was going about in all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. And the news about him went out into all Syria and they brought to him all who were ill, taken with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. a new king named Jesus came proclaiming the good news of a coming kingdom, healing every kind of disease and pain. He healed lepers, the blind, lame, even raised the dead, and he healed Gentiles. Jesus transformed their cries of despair and sorrow into joyous melodies of hope and renewal, a foretaste of the world to come. You see, in the miracles of Christ, this world was momentarily turned upside down. In the miracles of Christ, something wonderful occurred. This world was momentarily pressed into submission by a culture hostile to its own. This world was exiled and forced, for the moment, to adopt the ways of heaven no sorrow, no pain, no death. Could there have been a clearer expression of the kingdom of heaven in our world? And yet those whose eyes were trained on this world, those who were looking for an earthly political kingdom based on their own deeds, could not see it with these living pictures of paradise all around them, they blindly continued in their earthly gaze. They could not understand the mission and the agenda of Jesus. He did not come to establish the kingdom of man. He did not come to establish the kingdom of this world Foxes have holes and the birds of the airs have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. No, in fact, all the kingdoms in this earth and all of their glory could not tempt him away from the pursuit of his agenda. And truly, what value would the eternal Son place in a law used to manipulate God into giving him the comforts of a sin-cursed world that is passing away. His mission was to fulfill the promise of Emmanuel. He came to establish the kingdom of heaven. He came to draw sinners to God in covenant union. And Jesus did not do this through some mere formal, external adherence to the law Rather, he loved the Father with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he fulfilled the law in thought in word and deed. He showed himself to be the true man after God's own heart. And he submitted himself to the law at every point, refusing even to withhold his own life when called to drink the cup of the cross. My Father, if this cup cannot pass away, Unless I drink it, thy will be done. You see, brothers and sisters, the law for Christ was not merely a means to an end. He delighted in the law. For Christ, it was a glorious expression of the kingdom of heaven. His obedience flowed from the loving union he enjoyed with his father. His obedience was the expression of, of a heart, a heart that was entirely focused on the blessing of glorifying and enjoying God forever. And this is the same obedience he requires of his subjects. This must be at the heart of our repentance. You cannot gain access to the kingdom through some external adherence to a set of rules. You must first and foremost love the king. He leaves no room for misinterpretation. He demands your heart. He who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life shall lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake shall find. It. But we all struggle. We are not yet what we should be. Not in action. Not in words. Certainly not in thought. We love Christ, but we have these habits, these Patterns that betray our heart, our heart for God, and it seems we just can't shake them. And in the depth of our struggle, perhaps we wonder sometimes if we even really love Christ. And then there are those times where we feel like we're regressing, like perhaps we were holier and much more serious about our faith when we first believed than when we are now and the bar can seem so high. It's as if we are told by God that he literally requires us to touch the moon. And so we feel whenever we even make some progress, it's as if we've climbed maybe a rung or two on a step stool. We're still so far away from the moon. We still can't touch it. We're still not what we should be. And so we may lift our voice to the Lord and say, Lord, did you not promise your yoke was easy, your load light? Do you not call those who are weary and heavy laden and promise rest for their souls? But your law feels so heavy so hard, and the truth is the more we grow on the Lord, the more we discover just how much higher the obligation really is. He's not asking you to touch the moon. He's asking you to touch a distant star, and then we see more clearly our own shortcomings and find that we had previously perhaps overestimated the progress of our own efforts. You see, when we look into the mirror of God's law, we see our reflection against its requirements. And we discover a very hard reality. The law is not interested in you being better. It's not interested that you're progressing in obedience the law knows only one command, really. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And there is not one of you in this place this morning that has done that for one moment of your life. Put another way, Matthew five forty-eight: you are to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's the language of the law. It does not applaud progress. It expects perfection. It does not pat you on the back and commend you for being a little bit better today than you were yesterday. The law will never, never flatter your efforts. And so if you look to the law as a means of anchoring your confidence before God, then one of two things will likely occur you will either become deeply discouraged at the impossibility of success, or you will implicitly reduce the demands of the law and become unjustifiably arrogant in your perceived progress. And so what hope do we have that we can be ready for the King? May I interest you this morning in grace as you labor in obedience. When we take seriously our gaze into the law, it can be crushing. Be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. That's impossible. Why even try? In fact, the words of Jesus seem to make it even more severe. You have heard it said, do not murder. But I say, even wrongful anger kept in the recesses of your heart makes you liable to eternal judgment. Where is the good news in this? How is this any better than the legalism under which Israel placed herself? It's as if the burden now is even greater than it was under the Old Testament brothers and sisters the burden is not greater the difference is this israel pursued the law for self justification israel pursued the law for self for them the law became a burden it was a prerequisite for blessing For believers, justification has been completed in Christ. And so there is nothing you can do to make yourself more attractive to God. I suppose you think I've just insulted you. It's not a statement of hopelessness, but an acknowledgement of what you already have in Christ. You see, brothers and sisters, in Christ, you've already touched that star. The law now sings to us of the sanctification of glory. It is an altogether different perspective. The law captures for us the atmosphere of heaven. It is not a means to an end. Rather, it becomes for us part of the Emmanuel blessing itself. It anticipates our consummate heavenly life. You see, the behavior the law calls us to is the behavior we will have in full, in glory. There is, therefore, a strong relationship between what the law calls us to and what is, in fact, the greatest desire of our heart, to be with Jesus. For those in Christ, the law becomes kind of a prophecy It is a picture of our future. Jesus says in Matthew 5 in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And if you're a legalist, you're anticipating his next words will be, for they shall be justified. But that is not what Jesus says. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. they shall be satisfied. The righteousness which the law requires, the righteousness which we hunger for and pursue in this world is the righteousness we will be fully equipped with in heaven. When we as believers strive to conform our life to the law, we are striving for a greater comprehension now of what we will have in glory. As such, our obedience to the law is not a means to an end. And please catch this. As such, our obedience is a reward in itself. It is no longer a burden. Jesus took away that burden. And he now calls us to harvest the blessing. The king has come. The waiting is over. He has secured salvation for his church. He has secured all that the law would have required. He did it. And so the law no longer lectures us about the requirements for justification, but now more clearly sings to us of the glorified life in heaven before the face of God. And Christ has lavished his spirit upon us and given us new hearts that we might embrace his law not as a way to manipulate God into earthly comforts but as a reward in itself as a foretaste already of the life to come. Israel loved the land She did not love the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the true Israel love the Lamb. And in loving the Lamb, love the kingdom of heaven. And in loving the kingdom of heaven, love the law of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven... What a wonderful, gracious, undeserved work you have done. Indeed, we were content to be defiant. We were content to shake our fist in your face. We were content to disobey your law. We found joy in it. And yet, while we were in this state of disobedience, while we were your enemies, Christ died for us. While we were your enemies, you poured out your Spirit upon us. And now you have given us the seed of the heart of Christ. And it has taken root. And it is producing fruit. And we find in our hearts right now a longing for the law because we see in it the aroma of our Savior. Father, by your Spirit, would you continue to bless us through that wonderful work of sanctification, always keeping an eye on the goal. Might the law not not be a burden to us, but a delight. And Lord, in doing this, we ask that you would bring to completion that good work that you have begun that we might be indeed lights in this dark world, calling those who are blind in their own unbelief and disobedience into the world of the above, into that world that we know as eternal life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.